0: we hope that you find our discussion empowering. Hello, my name is Alan Collins. I'm the partner who heads up the abuse team at Who James and I am joined by my colleague Danielle Vincent. Hi, Danny. Hi,
1: Alan.
0: Before we get underway with this podcast, I need to remind you that in these podcasts we discuss sensitive issues which can be upsetting. And so if you think that you may be distressed by this podcast, please go off and make yourself a cup of tea or do something else. Otherwise, please do stay and listen to our latest podcast. That would be much appreciated. So, over to you, Danny. I will let you introduce the subject matter for this
1: Yes, so today we are going to be talking about Claire's Law, which was something actually I read about in um, an article in a magazine. And I hadn't heard about it and I was quite surprised about it. And then I remember coming into the office and speaking to both you and Kathleen, who's the other senior associate in the team, about it. And it was just something that I was surprised that just hadn't come onto my radar. But for our listeners that are also not aware of what Claire's Law is, it's the domestic violence disclosure scheme in the official title, which that's the official title for Claire's Law, but it's, it's widely known as Claire's Law if you're Googling it. And how the history of this came about was that there was a female called Claire Wood, and she was a 36 year old woman who was murdered in Safford in February 2009 by her ex partner, George Appleton. Appleton tragically strangled and burned Claire in the woods and subsequently killed himself a few days later after killing her. And the point of this is is that although he was known to police and had a known history of domestic violence and serious assaults to previous partners, Claire had no idea how violent he was. And then, so, after her death, her father campaigned tirelessly to bring about legal means for police to warn potential victims about their their partner's previously abusive behaviours. So this law was then implemented in England and Wales in March 2014.
0: Okay and of course as a team we're dealing with a number of homicides at the moment which have a domestic abuse background where tragically The offenders have got this terrible background of violence, domestic violence, but somehow or other are able to form a relationship with the ultimate victim, if I can put it like that, who ends up being murdered. For us, it's very topical. And I think for society, it is very topical as well, because there just seems to be at the moment a real issue with domestic violence. But anyway, please explain to us what... Claire's Law actually means in practice.
1: Yeah so this was something that actually we chatted about in the office you know we've got a lot of data protection these days and so how do do you get across from that so basically what it means in a nutshell is that anyone can ask the police about a partner or a member of public can ask about a partner a close friend a family member someone that they are directly concerned about And if the police decide to share that information, it will usually be with the person at risk or the person best placed to protect that person at risk, if for example, that they're a vulnerable person. However, The third party may not receive the information about the individual concerned. So the person making the request, they may not directly receive the information. As I say, it may go to the person that it's about. So I think there needs to be some understanding why the individual making the request would need the information above other people. Because, you know, I can see that there's got to be a balance of, you know, if you... In the dating world that there is today, if you sent such requests on every person you'd ever spoke to, one, the police probably would never have time to clear this. But also, it is an invasion of privacy in respect of if there is not a concern there. So one thing that I noted, actually, when I was looking into this to research it, to do the podcast, was Sharon Bryan from the National Centre for Domestic Violence. She stated that, you know, although this scheme is seven years old, very few people know about it or. Or what it is to access. So, you know, as we've given the example of why this law came about, there's a potential that it could save lives.
0: Sure. And of course, thinking about it, the person at the centre, the victim or potential victim, they either, in my experience of the terrible cases that we get, are either in denial or too afraid to do anything. And it's usually someone on the periphery, maybe another family member who is the one who's concerned because they can see yeah. what's going on. Again, I can only speak from experience of dealing with these situations when they all go tragically wrong and someone ends up being killed. It's those the, at the nucleus, at the heart of all of this, they are, as I said, they're either in denial or they're powerless or they're too afraid to do anything because they are, you know, really under the cosh of emotional and physical violence and it's a grandparent or a neighbour who's the one who's concerned. But anyway, so might come back to that in a moment. But it seems as though there's a number of ways to get this request going. So as I understand, applications can be made online by a police station visit, so calling into the police station, calling 101, or some police websites have a chat option and the individual requesting the information needs to give their identity details and provide supporting ID. They will need to explain what prompted the request and the nature of the relationship with the potential victim, if not themselves, and the person in question. The police may need to follow up the reason for the request was due to a crime, for example, witnessing violence. Initial checks are then made by the police. Process aims to be completed within 35 days. Other agencies are also checked, such as the prison service, probation, social services. So as I understand it, that we are now going to look at this, Danny, of the you know, the right to ask?
1: Yeah, so I touched upon it before, and I had to read this a couple of times to to quite understand it, but actually it's quite simple when you, you get your head around it. So that individual making the request, they have a right to ask the question, you know, is this person basically a concern? If such information exists, the police consider whether it needs to be disclosed, and as I said, who it needs to be disclosed to. The majority of time, my understanding is they may call you back to the police station to have a meeting with the individual requesting the information, if it can be disclosed to them, because, again, I'm sure for data protection, they were not just going to send out private information about individuals. So they do that. So they decide, you know, if there needs to be a safety plan then tailored to the potential victim needs to, to help them or support them, I guess, whether they need to help remove from a property or, or whatever that may be. But an important thing to know is that the person that's provided with the information, it's an offence under Section 55 of the Data Protection Act 1998 to, you know, knowingly or recklessly, obtain that information disclose it so there is a potential that you could find out information but you may not be able to share it with the potential victim or if that information for example is about a partner you're dating and you think oh gosh you know this is real risk I can't now continue this relationship you can't actually tell them that you know so when I was reading about this online and, and different people that experienced it, it, said it's then rather difficult to get away from your abuser because you're ending the relationship very quickly but without really giving a reason. So these are all things that you've got to think about at the time, which I thought, you know, that's. I hadn't thought about any of these things. The second part. So that's right to ask. Do so you have a right to go in and ask is a right to know. So you as an individual may receive disclosure about someone that you haven't asked about. So, for example, as you said, a grandparent, a mother, a friend, a family member may have gone and asked about your partner and that information has come back that there's a potential risk to you so you may be contacted to be told that you're at risk because of somebody in your life.
0: Mm. So this sounds useful but the information can only be disclosed if lawful and proportionate which is all very legally and therefore it seems to be on a case-by-case basis and you have found some statistics which shows that during the pilot of this in 2014, four police forces were involved. More than 60% of requests in Greater Manchester led to information being released, compared with just 11% in Merseyside. 3,760 applications under the law so far, resulting in 1,335 disclosures. So that's less than... 50%, 50%,
1: isn't it? Yeah, so we're looking at stats for 2014, 2015. There wasn't actually anything online in regards to since that point. So it's a difficult one. And I guess it's it's almost a bit like a postcode lottery, I guess, in respect, to, as you see, 60% of requests in Greater Manchester in comparison to, to 11 in Merseyside is a, a real difference so perhaps as, as we say you know it's what's disclosable is lawful and proportionate that different police forces perhaps have different you know criteria of what they will think is but but that was just quite a variation.
0: So Claire's law obviously is different to Sarah's law which is the sex offender disclosure scheme.
1: Yeah so I'm sure a lot of our listeners will remember Sarah's law from it was a terrible case wasn't it where the parent's in the end campaign tirelessly so that if there is a potential sex offender that is having contact with their their child that you can make a request to the police for information about a person who again yes has contact with your child or your child is close to them, or you're concerned that they may pose a risk. Now, I didn't want to make this podcast too long so that we went all into that as well. But I imagine again, it's going to be if the information is lawful and proportionate, and there will be a procedure to request that information also. But that just may be something for our listeners to bear in mind if Claire's law was not applicable. But actually, we don't see very much about Sarah's law either online, I don't think anymore.
0: And of course, these are two very useful laws, but I'm thinking about the cases that we have where someone has been killed by a known perpetrator. And I'm struggling to see how either of these laws would have prevented the murders, because a lot was known about these individuals yet they're able to worm their way into these families. They're on radar of the powers that be. They're on the authorities' radar. But then they just seem to be able to go below the radar, so to speak. They sort of disappear in plain sight. So the, the family at risk, the individuals at risk, they're there, they're visible. But as far as the authorities are concerned, they're not there. And that is, I think, in the cases that we see, okay we see you know where it all ends up going terribly wrong and someone gets murdered it's the fact that these vulnerable families just end up not being protected they just fall off the off yeah. the radar and that is what needs to change and of course we've got in parliament at the moment the victims bill which is to use my terminology designed to give the victims greater purchase in the criminal justice system great right. I think it's, myself, it's a pretty ineffectual piece of proposed legislation, and I hope the politicians will toughen it up. Again, it's after the event, and Sarah's Law and Claire's Law is, to their credit, designed to be before the event. But what is missing is this fact that these terrible people who go on and commit these terrible crimes are basically, you know, already known by everybody who, yeah. who matters yet they're able to go on and um, sort of wheedle their way into people's lives and do terrible things and that's what needs to change.
1: I think one of the things that I thought about actually when I was drafting this is that you're also dependent on the name that you're giving to the police is the correct name. So that if you have been in prison or an abuser before and you've left or you've changed towns, doesn't necessarily mean you're going by the same name.
0: Exactly, which is a big issue because there was a lot of press about that a little while ago and I think questions were asked in Parliament about all of that and then it all went quiet again. Again, you know, is what is there to stop a convicted abuser on their release from prison from changing their name? Fred uh,
1: whatever Felina and I did a podcast not long ago didn't we about people coming out on probation sex offenders and then breaching their restrictions and being near schools and things like that and that it was only known because they had a probation officer and i guess that's one of the things is that These requests apparently do still correspond with third-party agencies like probation services. So I guess it's trying to catch as much as possible in the the best way they can. But if someone flees and changes their name, that's going to be a difficulty. And the other point that I thought about with Claire's Law is that it also relies upon, as you say, sometimes people just don't disclose for years they really mm. don't so that a person may not have a track record so my advice to, to any listeners is that you know if you still run this search and that there's concerns to still reach out to the police or local
0: charities for support yeah so for future podcasts I've got two ideas number one is about accountability because we have touched upon in many podcasts over recent months the fact that terrible things go wrong and there's a big investigation and you can't actually work out where the buck actually stops because you've got all these agencies and all this law and all these measures but when push comes to shove terrible stuff still happens and a child gets killed or terrible sexual abuse takes place or you have Mm -hmm. a combination of the two. And you can see that the system has failed, but there is no accountability, which the victim's bill, in my humble opinion, does not address. And the second thing that we could perhaps talk about is whether there should be a law that actually prevents people who've been convicted of certain offences from being allowed to change their names.
1: Yeah, there'll definitely be many conflicting arguments in respect of that, won't there, in, spe- in respect of rehabilitation and human rights. But we'll leave that for another podcast. Mm, so you all it's it's something to think about. Then. So
0: you never know, uh, dear listener, if you think that would be something that we ought to look into, then please do get in touch. So on that note, thank you for listening to us. It's goodbye from me. and Bye, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of HJ Talks About Abuse. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify or your favourite podcast player. If you'd like to speak to us about something you've heard today, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at aboutabuse at hjtalks.co.uk